0: From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, from ancient biblical times up through the contested landscape of present-day America... We explore the depths of the concept of Shalom. It means peace in Hebrew, but also so much more. We speak with author Lisa Sharon Harper about her new book, The Very Good Gospel, to explore this concept in the Bible and in our lives. Stay tuned. friends, before we begin the show, I wanted to take a moment and talk to you about a new podcast from my friend, the Reverend Kat Banakis. It's called The Holy, Holy Podcast, and each episode, Kat takes this big question like dying or careers or how to be single and Christian, and she talks about it with experts from across the nation, sometimes from across the world, and then at the end of the show, she puts it to a three-person panel that includes a representative of the Muslim faith, the Jewish faith, and the Christian faith. It's always a fantastic conversation. i always learn something when I listen to it. And I just love the fact that she's doing it. So I hope that you'll take a look for the Holy Holy Podcast. You can find it through iTunes. You can find it at holyholypodcast.com. You can also find it through our website, csec.org. So that's the Holy Holy Podcast with the Reverend Kat Banakas. Give it a listen. I know, I know you're going to love it. Thanks. Okay, here we go with the show. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Lisa Sharon Harper. She's the Chief Church Engagement Officer at Sojourners, which is a nonprofit organization committed to putting Christian faith into action in the pursuit of social justice, peace, and environmental stewardship. She's the author of several books, including Evangelical Does Not Equal Republican or Democrat, and she's the co-author of Forgive Us, Confessions of a Compromised Faith. Harper has been recognized by the Huffington Post as one of the 50 powerful women religious leaders and is considered one of the nation's most influential voices on a faith-rooted approach to advocacy. She speaks extensively nationally and internationally, and she lives in Washington, D.C. Lisa Sharon Harper, welcome to Things Not Seen.
1: It is so great to be with you, David. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, we're going to talk today about your new book, The Very Good Gospel. And I'm excited to talk about this book. The subtitle of it is How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. Mm-hmm. But I'm also aware that in in the course of our conversation, this this book is not a one-off. This is tied very much into the very kind of fabric of what you do on a day-to-day basis. So just to start us off, let's let our listeners kind of know what your job is.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. Well, I, I like you said earlier, I'm the Chief Church Engagement Officer at Sojourners. And what that means, my whole job is really to help motivate and to help facilitate the the church getting out of the pews and into the streets in order to help their their legislators the people who govern the communities they live in to know what is true right and just
0: now why when you say get out into the streets doesn't the church already do that I mean I've been to a bake sale
1: That's really great. Thank you so much. Sorry for laughing in your ear there. Um, well, yes, the church does many bake sales. Um, and actually the church does a lot of different things that are beautiful and wonderful and good. Um, we're really, really good at giving out sandwiches. We're amazing at giving out cots for the homeless and letting them sleep in our own sanctuaries sometimes. Um, we're even good at creating alternative housing, alternative structures, and that would be called community development. But the church oftentimes is not as good as it needs to be in order to address the issues of systemic justice. And what that looks like is actually asking the question, what are the things that are at work in our policies and laws that are creating the needs for the cots and the sandwiches to begin with?
0: Now, that actually gets us into some of the first chapters of this book, The Very Good Gospel, Mm -hmm. because you go back to the history of the church for about the last hundred years or so, and you start to look at kind of where those things began to go wrong. Mm -hmm. Because at one point, we had a a notion, and this came a little bit out of the Wesleys with Methodism, and it was also very much there in the early evangelical movement, to begin to talk about what we might call the systemic issues, but kind of walk us through kind of where that started and where it kind of began to go awry.
1: Because when we talk about evangelicalism in particular, I mean when you look at the 19th century church, there was no divide between the the mainline and the evangelicals. There was no, everybody was actually evangelical, according to David Bebbington, who is a church historian, and he talks about four major characteristics of evangelicals. In the 19th century, one of those was activism. It wasn't enough just to believe precepts. You actually had to put it at, to work in your body. So, and that's why Charles Finney, when he created the, um, the altar call, he didn't just say, you know, okay, everybody believe these precepts. No, he said, take your body, walk up to the altar, kneel down and accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And more than that, enter into the under the authority of God, into the kingdom of God. And then he had sign-up sheets for the abolitionist movement really close by, or either on the altar or close by, depending on who you talk to. So that's activism. But then also there was a a deep biblicism. We are Bible-centered. We were Bible-centered people. And that's what led us to engage into the reformation of our society, because we were convinced as we looked at scriptures that – the society we lived in, which degradated whole swaths of people through the institution of slavery, was at war with the precepts of God, with the principles of God, with the image of God among us. So Charles Finney, Sojourner Truth, Phoebe Palmer, Harriet Beecher Stowe, and others called for the reformation of our society based on what they saw in Scripture. The third one is Cruciscentrism. So there's a deep belief that actually came forth out of the evangelical movement in the real transformative nature of the cross, that something really did happen on the cross that transformed the world and that it's that's why for us you know it's bc and ad it's so there's a, a centering of the cross in evangelicalism and the last one is conversionism so there's that there's that belief that you have to actually make a choice to follow a choice to repent of the ways that you have been moving away from god and then turn around and do a 180 and move toward god And that goes in the evangelical faith of the 19th century, not only in our personal relationship, but also in the wider society, which is why Finney had the sign-up sheets for the abolitionist movement on the altar. So those four – markers of evangelicalism was what happened. That's who we were. That's how we started. Even as early, I saw, I mean, that's who we were back in the 1700s. But as early as 1791, Jonathan Edwards II, Jr., was preaching abolition at a suffragist meeting. So you had this early Great Awakening, the son of the founder of the Great Awakening, the first Great Awakening, He got it way back then, and that's what carried us through into the the Second Great Awakening. But there was a break. There was a great divorce, what I call it. At the turn of the 20th century, the rise of the fundamentalist movement— which at, throughout the 19th century was really just this little sect that had almost nothing to do with anything. They became pretty powerful through the power of their relationships. Around that same time, you had Walter um, Rauschenbusch wrote a book called Christianity and the Social Crisis. And that book said, you know, because this is like the turn of the, of the 20th century. The people were um, experiencing great movement from the agrarian society of the South and the West into the cities, and there was great poverty, and there was great industry, and people were being exploited by industry.
0: And before we, we talk more about Rauschenbusch, which I want to get into, let me just say, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Things Not Seen, and I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Lisa Sharon Harper. We're talking about her new book, The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. Now, you were just talking about Walter Rauschenbusch, and in the book, you say that Rauschenbusch really accuses the movement of losing its focus. Yeah. Uh, And so what does that loss of focus look like in practical senses?
1: So in a practical sense, he was a pastor in Hell's Kitchen, New York City. So back at the turn of the 20th century in the Industrial Revolution, he saw his own parishioners suffering at the hands of industries that had no regulations at all. So they were working their children and women and men to the bone 12 14 hour days children men women were dying he had funerals became all too common for him and he was realizing our scripture has a lot to say about this why is the church not talking about it so that's why he wrote christianity in a social crisis but the fundamentalist rose up and they they were threatened by the rise of the women 's movement at the same time the suffrage movement, and at the same time um, this uh labor like the the call to actually put regulation on labor and they said, "Oh no 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 we 've got to put we 've got to take Jesus back to the fundamentals and so what happened was The, the story of Jesus got reduced to just that time on the cross. And then every, all the interpretation of that cross became, started coming from Paul, not Jesus himself. And then we get this Jesus, this, this understanding of the gospel that's extricated, lifted out of, outside of the full story of scripture, the full canon of scripture and the story, I believe, of, of God and God's relationship with God's creation, including us.
0: Now, let me see if I understand the dynamic because this this is very interesting to me.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So and, – and forgive me. I'm, I'm going to talk a little Bible and, and sure. I, I'm going to imagine that you're going to be interested in this too. Yeah. So Amos and Amaziah in the book of Amos. You could say if we take that, that Amaziah, the priest who's there to speak on behalf of the king – is is sort of the conservative. I'm I'm going to speak for the status quo and the power structure, mm-hmm. and then Amos comes along as this prophetic radical, yeah. right? But what I love about that that book, Amos, is that in this passage where Amos says, "No, I'm not a prophet. I'm I'm the tender of sycamores. I'm a, I'm a shepherd. Uh, I'm not mm-hmm. the prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet." And so. When I hear him say, I'm not a prophet, I'm a tender of sycamores, that makes me think of Leviticus 18 and the gleaning of the fields. So mm-hmm. how are you going to take care of your society? You're going to take care of your society by when you harvest, you're going to make sure that what is there at the edges is there for the poor and the hungry and the wayfarer. And so what I love about that, that dynamic is that when we first look at Amos and Amaziah, it looks like Amaziah is the conservative and Amos is the radical. Mm-hmm. But then Amos says, no, 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 I'm calling you back to God's true plumb line.
1: Yes, And yes. That, that's
0: actually the – And that, am, am I hearing right that that's kind of where where you're wanting to take this dynamic as well?
1: Okay, yes, 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 yes. So here's the reason why. I want to actually go right into Chapter 2 of the Very Good Gospel, right? So Chapter 2, we actually talk about and start with – but there's there's this point where we're talking about four words in that I believe and really kind of unlocked Genesis for me Genesis the whole book it just unlocks it all and actually unlocks the concept of shalom which i believe shalom is all shalom really is is what the kingdom of god smells like
0: now for our listeners that have never heard this word before what is shalom
1: shalom is not really put you can't you can barely put shalom into an english word it we call it peace but it's much more than peace it's not the absence of conflict it's the presence of truth and reciprocity, and justice, and uh, repentance. Shalom is when all of the relationships are well within creation, because all of the relationships are as they should be.
0: And so, in chapter two, you're you're defining shalom as one of these words. But you mentioned that there are other words as well that really unlocked Genesis for you. What are those words?
1: Yeah. So, so here we go. So, the if you go to the end of Genesis one. You actually get this moment where God looks around at all creation and says, this is very good. Um, those words, very good, are tov me'od. In the Hebrew, tov is the word good, and me'od is actually very, in, they're inversed. And tov is not necessarily in the Hebrew culture talking about the thing itself. So God is actually not looking around, and the Hebrews who read this or or listened to it, listened to the priest talk it, say it, would not have been hearing the priest say, Oh, God looked around and said, That's a really good hippopotamus, or look at that human being, that's a very good human being. No. What well, God would have been saying is the relationships between all of the things I have created is tov me'od, is very good. And that word very is forceful. It's abundant, overflowing. So imagine God looks around at the end of the sixth day and God says the relationship between humanity and God is forcefully good. The relationship between men and women is forcefully good. And the relationship between humanity and all creation and the systems, the way things work is forcefully good there is no cursing only blessing in this original creation as God created it that is what God calls very good
0: if you're just joining us You're listening to Things Not Seen, and we're talking today with Lisa Sharon Harper. Now, she works for Sojourner's Magazine, and Sojourner's job is to try and put faith into action. She's based in Washington, D.C., but she travels all over the world. And we're talking today about her new book, The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. We'll be back in a moment. Hello, David Dalt here. You may be wondering why we take time out of the podcast to have these little minute-long breaks with the crazy music underneath. The answer is simple. We are trying to design the podcast so that it pays for itself. And so these are places where someday we will have some advertising. Now, let's say that you have been interested in getting into some sort of podcasting advertising platform where you want to promote your product. We would be a wonderful mid-market solution for you, uh, particularly if you want to reach an educated audience that really, really likes stuff about religion. Uh, so that's what this is here for. So if you would like to learn more about advertising with us, you can go to AdvertiseCast.com or you can contact us through our website. We would love, love, love to work with you. Thank you always for listening. Okay, back to the show. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Lisa Sharon Harper, and we're talking about her new book, The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. Lisa Sharon Harper is the chief church engagement officer at Sojourners Magazine, a nonprofit organization committed to putting Christian faith into action for the pursuit of social justice, peace, and environmental stewardship. So before the break, we were talking about these words at the end of Genesis that really unlocked the book for you. And you, you were talking about the concept of tov me'od, the notion yes. of forceful goodness. And, yes. and it was not just goodness in the thing itself but goodness in the relationship between things. Did I hear that right?
1: Yes, you did. And so, so you have this – you have what the kingdom of God, what the rule of God looks like is the relationships between all created things being forcefully good. And part of what that looks like, if you go a little bit further back in the sixth day, you get to the second word that I'm going to raise up, which is the word salem. It's the word image. When God looks around or when God starts creating on the sixth day, God says, and let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness. So actually there's two words there. There's salem, which is image, and there's demuth, which is likeness. I'll start with salem, right? So salem, image is really about representative figure. The Salem is the representative figure and what – and here's the thing. So in the research that I did for the book, I realized – I came across some some of the research that said that the original writers of Genesis 1 – And many, most scholars today actually believe that there are multiple authors of Genesis. Genesis 1 in particular, and then also the Table of Nations, I believe in Genesis 11 and a few other spots, were written by priests, a company of priests. These priests were coming out of the Babylonian exile
0: and you actually talk about the Babylonian creation myth but what yes. what is that myth and how is it different from what we find in Genesis
1: So and this is why it's important when we get to the Salem piece so there's there's a connection here The Babylonians believed that humanity was created to be enslaved by the gods like the all humanity was created to be slaves of the gods they also believed that in the creation story that the gods were created inside the waters and they lived in the river, in the waters, and they warred in the waters, in the river.
0: Warred meaning they went to battle. They
1: went to battle with each other for supremacy. And so in that, in that original creation story of the Babylonians, it's called Enuma Elish. You have this, this, really brutal, brutal war between the gods. And it's what's so deep is that these priests are coming out of oppression. I used to think, you know, okay, they were at the Babylonian exile and then they were done and they went back into the temple. But I didn't really think about what that exile was. That exile was slavery. They were enslaved. They were enslaved for 70 years. That's about five generations when you count how early they were having children. And then they they were removed from their original land and taken into a land that is not their own told they needed to be people who they knew they were not they were created to be slaves and they knew they were not and they were they were told to believe in this whole world view That was not their own. So these priests, when they're exiting this oppression, they write Genesis 1. And what they're doing is they're commenting. They're doing commentary on Enuma Elish. And you can tell by the things they keep from Enuma Elish and the things they change. They keep the waters. The waters are still there. But in the biblical creation story, there is only one God. And that God is positioned Over the waters. That just blew my mind when I saw that. What? Our God is positioned over, over the source of their oppression. Over the gods who defined who they were, made as slaves. God, and actually it's not just God, it's Elohim, it's supreme God, the supreme God. And that God hovers over the deep. And that word hover is not just, you know, God was just hanging out. No, it was actually... Like brooding, like a, like a hen broods over her chicks, over her eggs. Like something's about to hatch into the world. God's about to do battle. And that battle is done by birth. So God actually says, let there be light and light is born into the world. And that's, that's, it just blew my mind. I was like, wow, God is doing battle with the darkness. That word darkness also can be translated despair, desolation, basically everything bad, right? And so you get a picture of the world, what it was like for the Jews to be in Babylon. It was despairing. There was desolation. There was death, but God hovered over it and didn't let it overcome. God said, let there be light. And there was light. And the Jews exited Babylon. There was an end. There were boundaries on their despair, boundaries on the chaos of their world. So, That's the nature of the God that these Jewish priests were trying to communicate to the Jews after having been oppressed by this worldview that told them they were slaves. And then you come to the top of the sixth day and they say, and let humankind be made in our image. And that is a revolutionary statement for these priests to make because the worldview of the Babylonians said, no, you are not made in the image of God. Only the royalty is made. Only the 1% is made in the image of God. But they said, no, all humanity is made in the image of God. All humanity are representative figures of where God rules.
0: Now, if I'm hearing this right, then – this leads not just to a nice story, but it actually leads to a social order. There's a politics here
1: there is, and actually, let's go even further into that. so when you when you look now, you actually can take and see where Jesus takes this, right? So Jesus is walking around, and Jesus goes into the temple, the the heartbeat of civil and and religious rule in Jerusalem, and he is now going, he's doing battle really with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they say, you know, well, what do you, what do you think about taxes? Jesus, should we pay our taxes? And Jesus says, show me the coin whose salem or whose icon is on this coin. And he says, and they say, well, Caesar's icon is on the coin. He says, great. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And then he says, and give to God what is God's. Well, Where is God's salem? Where is God's icon? It is in us. Give to God. Give God the people. And the thing is, in the Roman Empire, they were overtaxing the people. And the tax structure, in particular, the way that – things worked. It wasn't even really the empire. It was the way that the tax collectors were taking stuff off the top. The the temple itself was taking more off the top and it was burdening the people. So they were absolutely impoverished. So Jesus came against that. And when Jesus said, give to God, what is God's Jesus was saying, lift the oppression off the backs of the people, give to Rome, what is Rome's, but give to God, what is God's. Now let's go back to that word. Salem in Genesis 1, Right after he says, and let them, let humankind be made in our image, he says, and let them have dominion. That's the fourth word, rada. The fourth word, rada, is often misunderstood. We, you know, a lot of people have translated that to mean like subjugation, even unto obliteration. That humans, because we are the quote unquote pinnacle of creation, whatever we say goes. That word demuth actually tempers that because we are in God's likeness, but we are not God. So what does what does Radha mean? What does what does dominion mean? It actually means something much more akin to stewardship. It's the actual literal meaning is to tread down, but the images of the untamed wilderness, where you know the wilderness will grow up wherever it wants to go, unless you kind of hem it in, create boundaries for it, maintain the wellness of the relationships as God created them. And in Genesis two, you get an even clearer picture of dominion. You get God putting the human beings in the middle of the garden and saying till and keep it. That's a picture of exercising dominion. But you know what till and keep mean? They mean serve and protect. So to exercise dominion, to steward the world actually looks like serving the world, protecting the wellness of the relationships that God established. So there's a few different implications here. Let me just get to the implications. One Every single human being on earth is made in the image of God. The Uber driver, the mom who's on welfare, the teacher.
0: But you also mentioned that the homeless person that we encounter – and Heidiya Pendleton, yes. and Sandra Bland, yes. and 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 all the other names uh, yes. that we that we've Michael heard, Michael Brown, yes.
1: and um, and Alton Sterling, Tamir Rice, and Philando Castile—they yes. are all made in the image of God. Yes, and because they are all made in the image of God, now we know theologically every single one of them was created by God with God's call and. Capacity, all things being equal, to exercise dominion.
0: If you're just joining us, we're having a conversation with Lisa Sharon Harper about her new book, The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. This is things not seen. I'm David Dolt. So you were just saying that if we if we look at this notion of the Salem, mm-hmm. the image that God has placed on us, the Imago Dei in, in another theological yes. term, that we are called to a certain relationship, both with God but also with each other, but that that means everyone, not just the 1%, but everyone that we encounter, even the most lowly person. So let's keep going with that. What does that mean?
1: All things being equal, we all are called to help steward the world. But see, one of the implications, another implication of this truth is that every single person on earth is created with that call. And a third implication is that when we govern in a way that diminishes the capacity or the acknowledgement that a person or a people group are created to exercise dominion, then we are also diminishing the image of God on earth. Now, why is that significant? Why would that be significant in the scope of things? Because remember, the image of God is how God communicates where God rules. So God said, multiply and fill the earth. Why? Well, because God wants the whole earth to know that God rules here. So I believe, and this is the good news of the gospel, The very good news is that when Jesus came in Luke 4, when Jesus came and and when John proclaimed him coming in, in John 1 and said, the light has broken the darkness. Hello, somebody. And when Matthew proclaims with the lineage that Jesus has come in each of these cases, there is a confrontation of kingdoms happening. A confrontation of governance. You have the governance of men or human beings. In other words, the kind of governance that takes for self, the kind of governance that governs only for the self, for self-interest versus God's kind of governance, with gov- which who's governs in a way that protects, serves, cultivates the image of God in all.
0: Now, when the Quakers come across this sort of notion, they, they take it and they radicalize it and they say, because there's that of God in you and that of God in me, I cannot. If I try and do violence against you, then I'm doing violence against the image of God and therefore against God and therefore I must be a pacifist. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we see that the Quakers turned this notion into a politics, but you don't come from the Quaker tradition. You come from an evangelical tradition. So Mm -hmm. what does this look like in evangelicalism both in a good way and in a bad way?
1: Well, let me just say, I come from a Christian tradition. I am an evangelical, but, but I am a Christian first. And, and the reality is, is that within Christendom, there have been many, many ways and approaches to war and violence. But what I really am about, I mean, as an evangelical, I'm a biblicist. I'm really all about Bible. And when I look at how Jesus handles confrontation with the state, Jesus himself, here's the, I had this conversation with, with an audience not too long ago, and I shared with them, I said, look, Jesus was confronted in the Garden of Gethsemane when Judas brought um, the Pharisees and the Sadducees to come and snatch him. And they were – and it was the guards that actually came. And this one guard in particular was named Malchus, came and snatched Jesus. And Peter pulled out his sword and sliced off Malchus's ear. Malchus was the guard of one of the Sadducees, I believe, or Pharisee. And Jesus, what did Jesus do? Jesus reached down, took the ear, put it back on his head and said, Peter, stop that. If you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. And I asked myself as I was studying that passage, and this actually comes up in the chapter on Shalom Between Nations, that I said, why would Jesus not have actually called down crescendum and just done battle right there, right? Like he could have done it at any point. Why not right then? When when they were about to snatch him and he was one day away from getting on being put on a cross. He could have fought his way out of that. Well theologically there are lots of reasons why you can say that. But I also believe that one of the main reasons is because Jesus when he saw Malchus, he saw the image of God. When Jesus saw Caesar, he knew Caesar was made in the image of God. When Jesus saw Pilate, when Jesus saw any one of the rulers, he or and the Samaritan woman, every single human being on earth, he saw the image of God. So how can Jesus strike the image of God? He can't. So therefore... Nonviolence must be the way that we move forward because if we, if we use tactics that are violent tactics, we then are guilty of crushing the image of God on earth.
0: But what comes to mind when you say that is a couple of images from a Spike Lee film, Do the Right Thing,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and this, this moment where Radio Raheem – is choked to death and dies. And then a couple of scenes later, the Spike Lee character, Mookie, picks up a brick and throws it through the window. He
1: actually picks up a a trash can. A trash can, I'm Mm -hmm. sorry, and throws
0: it through the window and and, and breaks the window of, I think it's Sal's Pizzeria. That's right. And what I later heard Spike Lee talk about is that audiences that were white predominantly would say, why did you break the window? And and would miss the fact that Radio Rahim was killed. And so... What I'm hearing and what you're saying is that we cannot – we cannot do violence against those that bear the image of God. Against
1: the image of God. Uh,
0: against the image of God. But it is proper sometimes perhaps to take and do violence against structures or to take action against structures that may appear violent. And, and James Cohn says a version of this, you know, sometimes spreading the gospel looks like throwing a brick through a window.
1: First of all, I love Do the Right Thing. I've actually done some writing on it and I believe it is genius. So, think about it for a minute. Radio Rahim is killed. Mookie picks up the, um, the trash can, throws it through the window, and a window is broken, and that is called violence because it has done violence to a business, right? We, that business can no longer collect dollars. Now, Mookie made a choice because in that moment, that crowd was ready to kill Sal. That crowd was ready to, I mean, just pounce, kill the white man. They were like, So there was going to be a riot and who was going to be killed? Who was going to be – who was going to have violence done against them? The white man. So instead he redirected the anger at that window. And so, yes, property was destroyed. But it's better – if you have to make a choice between property and the image of God – Property is the better thing. Now, take this back. Let's take this back to the civil rights movement. When you have on the pilgrimage for reconciliation that I took about in 2003, 13 years ago, which was the journey that actually was the impetus for this book. So I've been soaking in this for 13 years since I, since I took this journey. But one of the most like aha moments that I had on that journey was in the Rosa Parks Museum. We were down in in Montgomery, Alabama, and I'm scanning the walls. And the cool thing about this museum is that you have a whole wall that's dedicated to original documents in the Montgomery bus boycott. And on this wall is one of the original documents. It is a newspaper ad taken out in the form of a letter. And the letter was written from the White Citizens Council to the black people of Montgomery. And what this letter said was, stop doing violence to our city. Stop doing violence. And that word violence, I can it was like repeated. About five times in the midst of this letter, and I was literally baffled. I was thinking, what violence are they doing? I don't get it. How are they doing violence? Because I knew that they weren't shooting anybody. I mean, they, they, weren't, they weren't even hitting anybody. They were simply not taking a bus. They were just not taking a bus. So how is it violent to not take a bus? So I literally walked away. And remember, this is the same time that people are showing up in mass graves in the South. This is the same time that homes are being bombed and churches are being bombed. And men and women and children have been lynched. Thousands have been lynched by this time. And yet this is to not Ride a bus is called violence, and it hit me. I literally, in the middle of this museum, dropped to my knees, and it hit me when I realized it was violent because they had lost 3,000 fares per day, and the bus company almost went under. That was violence.
0: We're speaking with Lisa Sharon Harper about her new book, The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalton. We'll be back in a moment. Hello, Dave Dalt here. Earlier in the show, I talked about podcast monetization through advertising. But let's say that you, as a listener, don't have anything to sell right now, but you still want to support Things Not Seen. We can make that happen. Here's how it works. You could go to our thingsnotseenradio.com website or csec.org and make a one-time donation. It would be tax-deductible, and that would be wonderful. But you can also support us on an ongoing basis through a platform called Patreon. Now, here's how that works. You set the amount, $1, $5, $10, $1,000, whatever an episode of Things Not Seen is worth to you. And every time that we release a new episode, you would be charged on your credit card for that amount. You set it. You set how long you do it. It's completely up to you. But it really would help us. So please, go to our website or go to patreon.com and set it up. And we thank you always for listening. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. And each week we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Lisa Sharon Harper. She works for Sojourners, which is a social justice organization based in Washington, D.C. But we're talking today about her new book, The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. Right before the break, we were talking about an experience that she had at a civil rights museum Mm -hmm. where she was looking at a letter from the White Citizens Council saying, stop doing violence to our city Mm -hmm. and the violence that was being being done was economic violence.
1: That's right. But
0: the context of that economic violence, if I'm hearing you correctly, was literal physical violence being done against the African-American population. Yes. But that was not being recognized as violence. That
1: wasn't called violence. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were the ones perpetrating that violence. They were the ones lynching people. They were the ones throwing bricks through the homes of black, black people, black faith leaders. They were the ones who bombed MLK's home. And yet it was called violence to bring the bus company to its knees by not riding the bus. And when it hit their money, it was called violence. Another another moment from that snapshot from that journey, which just really put it all in perspective, was the last stop on that journey, which was the MLK Museum um, in Atlanta, Georgia. But this particular time, I saw paintings, and I saw dollar bills between the paintings. And I saw this one painting, and the painting was of A really happy slave. I can not believe it. This slave was holding a huge bale of cotton, and he was looking at the person looking at him, you know, the painting, and he had a big smile. And so I thought, well, what is this? So I, I looked, in, and on the wall, you had the little plaque that said how you go through the exhibit, and it said examine the picture and then examine the dollar bill next to the picture and see if you can find the picture that is on the wall in the dollar bill. So I did, and I did. I found the picture In the dollar bill, there was that happy slave in the dollar bill. I was like, what is this? So then I went to the next picture and it was this beautiful bucolic setting with a full family picking cotton and smiling and fully clothed, beautiful clothes, I have to say. Then you look next to it and there's the dollar bill and they are on the dollar bill. And I thought, what is this? So I I finally found the actual title of the exhibit. It was called The Color of Money confederate currency the, the confederacy as propaganda placed pictures of happy slaves on their money and put that money out all over the world and it struck me two things one they understood they understood media marketing and then number two they understood something else more fundamental that slavery was not about hate slavery was not about anything but money Because really what we're talking about is the idolatry of money. We are willing to subject the image of God on earth to horror in order to gain a buck.
0: Now, this brings us full circle back to where we started with Walter Rauschenbusch. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I got from your discussion of Rauschenbusch was that he he was talking about repentance. But oftentimes in religious contexts, we hear repentance as an individual thing. But he also wanted systems to repent, if I've heard that. Yes, that's exactly right. So how how then can a system like a system that creates money that has happy slaves on it, Mm -hmm. repent of that? And it's easy to call out the Confederacy. How can present day America repent of its of its destruction of the Imago Dei?
1: Well, I think that that's actually the first thing is that we need to ask the question, and the reality is is that our nation from the 1660s has abided by a worldview that literally explicitly said at one point that only some were created. Fully In the image of God or in the image of God at all, meaning only some were created with the call and the capacity to exercise dominion on this land. And we codified that into law. Starting in the 1660s with judicial law, with the colonies, there was actually a case of three indentured servants, two white, one black. The two indentured servants, all three ran away. All three got caught. They were all three brought before a judge. The two white servants were, were sentenced to seven more years of indentured servitude. The black servant was sentenced to servitude servanthood in perpetuity. That was that was the fork in the road. That was when we decided as an that was the, the beginning of the fork, the first case of race based slavery in America. The different colonies began to pass laws that made it more and more race based until 1787 comes around and we get the three fifths compromise within the new United States of America.
0: And what's interesting about the three fifths compromise, if I'm understanding it correctly, and please correct me if I if I have this wrong. Mm-hmm. But the three-fifths compromise, oftentimes I hear it say, well, it means that a slave was three-fifths of a person. Mm -hmm. But what I understand that more to mean is that for the purposes of representation, a slave was counted – uh, for representation purposes, but the slave was not being represented by the representatives that were gained by the fact that three-fifths of the slave was being counted for representation. Do I have that right?
1: Oh, it is so, it's so hideous I and mean, insidious. So, so yes, yes, yes. So basically what, what they did was in order to, to game the system so that the, so the South would have an equal vote with the North or an equivalent vote with the North, they counted the slaves as as subjects in the South so that you could actually get more representation of Southern legislators. But those same enslaved people could not vote. So they really had no ability to exercise dominion on in that land, on that territory. So, I mean, the very thing that America was formed against, taxation without representation, you actually have – you have – in the South, a system set up – it's like it's – I'd call it the first gerrymandering, um, the southern gerrymandering, right? So where you get – you basically have a district that is set aside in order to create more representation for a particular political group. That's what happened in the South. And so you have the 1787 Declaration of Three-Fifths Compromise where you – and the thing is the Northerners, the North didn't want black folks to be represented at all. They wanted them to be counted as non-human. So, you know, you think the North is all good, but the North ain't all good. I'm sorry, Chicago. The North wanted black people to be counted as chattel. And three years later in the census, they are. We are counted as chattel. And then from that point on, in the census, we are non-human altogether. So that's eighteen or 1787. Then in 1790, three years later, you actually have the Immigration Act of 1790. And in the Immigration Act of 1790, it is declared that only white people will be able to become naturalized citizens of the United States. Now, why does that matter? Why would it matter, first of all, who could become a naturalized citizen, but why is it then dedicated only to white people according to race well it's because to become a naturalized citizen means to be able to vote to be able to exercise dominion and they reserved that right explicitly to white people. And the funny thing is, I mean, the, even the whole category of white didn't exist really. It's kind of grew into the American consciousness, but now around this time it's being codified into law. And then in the first census, the only category that there was in the first census was white. The other, the other category was slave.
0: But this is not happening apart from the reading of the Bible. The Bible is being read to make sure that this is the state of affairs.
1: That's exactly right.
0: Okay, but but how is it that we can read the Bible and we can see the liberative words and they would see the Bible and they wouldn't see the liberative words of it?
1: Well, I, here's, here's I had, again, another aha moment when I was studying Genesis was I realized these priests had been oppressed for 70 years. I had never heard that before, ever. In all my time in the church, and I've been a Christian and walking in the church since 1983, multiple different churches, never heard this teaching. And I thought, why have I never heard this teaching? Why why has it never been taught to me that the priests who wrote Genesis 1 might be commenting on the oppression that they just experienced after 70 years in Babylon? And it occurred to me, maybe it's because most of my teachers have been writing from the perspective of Babylon. Maybe it's because most of the people that I have learned from, the very people who create, craft, and shape, and actually dictate where our the, like the, the very foundations of our theology and theologizing processes are actually, they are the ones writing from the, from the social location of empire. They're the ones who are controlling the narrative. But what struck me was when I looked, I really, I, I checked. I was like every single book, every book, every word, every verse, every paragraph in the whole scripture was written by, for, and about people who were oppressed. So how do we think then if we are, if our social location is one from Starbucks, if we are reading this in Starbucks with our latte at the side and our journal on our left, how do we think we can even begin to understand? I mean, without the in, the being informed by people who are oppressed, the words of people who are oppressed.
0: If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Lisa Sharon Harper. She's the author of The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. You're listening to Things Not Seen, and I'm David Dalt. So in order to properly understand the text that is in front of us in the Bible, we have to be engaged with those that understand oppression, which means that we need to be stepping out into the world and actually talking to homeless people, those that are being beaten, those that are being beaten by Babylon, if I'm hearing you correctly.
1: We must have the whole church in order to understand the whole gospel the whole of Scripture. And in fact I love the title of your of your program, Things Not Seen. Because I actually think that our social location, where we exist in the world, socially, economically, dictates what we see in the scripture.
0: I come from a, a recovery tradition and oftentimes in my tradition we we use a phrase that we don't see the world as it is, we see the world as we are. Is yes. that is that resonating yes. with what you're saying? Exactly. Yeah.
1: And if so so it's it's kind of like the thing like If we come from a place or a space where our greatest challenges are mostly personal, right? Where our greatest challenges might, where somebody in our family might struggle with alcoholism, but it's like personal choices they're making that are, you know, they're kind of, they become an alcoholic because they've chosen to go that route and now their whole body is kind of consumed by it. And it is a disease and I'm all down with that. But the reality is it's personal choices are actually, you know, making people move into that. And then also drugs, right? Or, um, or, or maybe it's unemployment because someone, um, has not, uh, has not, um, you know, done the work in order to get the job. And the reason why we can think it's an individual thing is because the reality is, is that most of society we know and, and the, the context that person has and their family, they actually, society is set up so that they should be able to do well. But what Walter Bergman, not Bergman, Walter Rauschenbusch said um, in um, the Christianity in a Social Social Crisis was, if you see millions of people running down well-defined grooves in society, all moving in the same direction. In other words, millions running into unemployment, millions running into drug um, addiction, millions running into into utter poverty. Then you have to ask the question, is this a structural problem? Because... The manifestation is certainly structural. Are there structures and systems that are actually moving people down those well-defined groups? Well, if that's the case, God actually says a lot about that. You talked about the gleaning fields earlier. Well, I actually think that that's a great example of – how God would rule if God actually had governance in our world. And there was a point, at least according to scriptures, when God did have governance. It was the time when the nation of Israel was established, right? Like it was the time when the Ten Commandments were established. And what do we see in the Ten Commandments? We see the Sabbath the Sabbath wasn't just about, you know, resting. It wasn't just about, you know, taking a day off. It actually was an economic equalizer and a social equalizer that actually took a prominent place in the community of of the people of Israel. The Sabbath created one day out of the week where if you were a slave, if you were a worker, if you were an owner, if you were a business mogul, you would be All equal before the throne of God. God wanted everyone to come in and be with God.
0: And again, that goes right back to this notion of the Salem, the image of God in us, because God rests, therefore every person rests. And this is different than the Babylonian myth where certain people get the privilege and other people don't. Have I heard that right? Yes,
1: exactly. Exactly. And then up the ante, God under God's governance creates the sabbatical year where not only do people take the seventh day off, but they've taken the whole seventh year off. Off. Everybody gets to rest during this entire year. Now, can you imagine the impact that would have on the economy? Like nobody was allowed to work. Not even the oxen could work. And debts were forgiven in the seventh year. I think, first of all, the truth that it, that God is establishing under God's governance is that people are more important than profit. And that is something we do not live by. But under God's governance, the kingdom of God, that is a – it's like – that's the golden rule, a golden rule.
0: You see so clearly so many of the difficulties in our current state of affairs. And yet in talking to you, it is clear to me that you you just seem to be an abundance of hope and energy. What keeps you hopeful?
1: Wow, that's a great question. (laughs) I mean I think especially in today's world where – the forces that are trying to keep the image of God in some suppressed, oppressed, contained, confined, controlled, that is real. And we are seeing it. We're seeing it in our election cycle. We're seeing the rhetoric that comes up. And and so it can truly be tempting to despair. I have to say it was in the in the midst of writing the very good gospel. It was in chapter 2, again, looking at Genesis 1. Genesis 1, that section where, where, we, where I was reading and I was studying about how God hovered in the darkness over the deep and how for these priests who had experienced five generations of oppression— what felt like the never-ending Shoah. And and also for my own ancestors who experienced not 70 years of slavery, but 254 years of slavery, of race-based slavery in America. And who could have thought that that ever could be finished? Who could have thought that that ever would have been abolished? It was like the Internet. It was so common, slavery was. So to look at that, it would be very tempting to despair. But the thing is, is that It did end, and it ended because of people of faith. When we look at all of the different periods where despair felt like it might be overwhelming, where darkness threatened to overwhelm, the reality is God intervened. The reality is love intervened, and that's what gives me hope. And that's what happens, light always cuts darkness darkness does not overwhelm we might be at the darkest point of the night but the morning comes
0: well lisa sharon harper i have really enjoyed this conversation thank you for taking time to come and talk to us about your book and about your work please feel free to come back anytime i'd love to keep talking to you about this stuff.
1: thank you so much david it was such a pleasure thank you
0: We've been talking with Lisa Sharon Harper. We've been talking about her new book, The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. Lisa Sharon Harper is the chief church engagement officer at Sojourners, which is a nonprofit organization committed to putting Christian faith into action in the pursuit of social justice, peace, and environmental stewardship. She lives in Washington, D.C. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC, with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. David Dalt engineered the show. Kim Tron and Colleen Pellisier did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Ables, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoch. Please join us.